So we are entering into Holy Week, and um, it's interesting because uh, this is, Palm Sunday is really a dialogue in Scripture about power. Um, it is all about power, and especially as we look to Jesus well, on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and then on Easter Sunday. Um, this is really the beginning of this dialogue about power. I mean, Jesus has been talking about power this entire time. But this is really where the culmination of everything he's been saying and doing comes about. And it's going to come in a very mysterious way. Um, so the first question, you know, because I love my questions that I wanted to, to have for you, because we, we have these certain sort of concepts of power in our minds. Um, if you were to paint a picture, you can click it, sorry. If you were to paint a picture to describe triumph, what would it look like? Think about that. To de describe triumph. Let me bring it down a little bit loud. It's a little bit better. I think it's a little, a little loud. Um, that's, I think that's good, Mike. Thank you. OK. Um, if you were to paint a picture to describe triumph, what would it look like? You think about it and then t talk amongst yourselves to describe triumph. It's a weird question. All right. I know it's I know it's a weird question, um, but it's these weird questions that kind of help us unpack how we approach scripture and how we approach Palm Sunday, um, and how we approach power. So, what were some of the things uh, that came to mind in your dialogues about triumph? What, how would you paint the picture? What would be in your picture if you were to paint the picture of triumph? Stone rolled away from, rolled away from it's a good Sunday school answer. I like that answer. <laughs> That's it. Yep, there it is. I guess we're done. Everybody can go home. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it. Winning a race. I think I heard a tr you said trophy or something like that. Yeah. Arms raised, right? It's not like downtrodden. What other images? Uh, Miguel, you said, yeah. interesting picture of triumph, but it kind of implies peace in some ways. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, so just the serenity of the surrounding. Right? I like that, yeah. Mine was just, I don't know, when you first said it was something, how to describe clouds, just, you know, beautiful white fluffy clouds, and then like golden ray, you know, coming down, but not like from the sun. It was and I don't know how to say that, but just some sort of a thing that that's, you know, you've reached the epitome, the top, and it was every bit of glory as, mm. as promised. That's it's like a light breaking through. Yeah. Kind of yeah. like that. I like that. That's a, I'm picturing it in my head. I like that. That's good. 
Yeah. Leverage off that, I was thinking like an amazing sunset or even amazing sunrise, like you conquered your day or your night, and it's a new beginning. Like mm. I love that you all are primarily focused on, on the opposite of what I've expected. <laughs> right? That's generally how that works, I think. Um, because usually triumph is all about conquering. And you all aren't describing conquering. You're talking about something more peaceful nature, I guess, right? I mean, that's kind of in the examples. Um, did you have one, Lori? Yeah. yeah. There it is. That's a <laughs> somebody getting a gold medal hung around their neck. Yeah. Finishing the marathon, breaking the pace at the finish line. Yep, those are thank you. I should have had you speak before I said what I I mean the first image that I always picture is Rocky, you know, on the stairs, right? That's the triumph. Why didn't anybody say that? Um, so just like we have pictures of what a triumphal sort of pursuit or activity is, um, people within Jesus' time and context would have too. I just found a picture so you can get an idea of what a triumphal entry would have looked like. And I'm sure you've seen this. This isn't your first Palm Sunday, I'm sure. Um, go ahead, you can click it, Mike. Um, so this is a common triumphal entry right? for, for Rome. Usually what happens is that um, someone that's gone away, that's been sent away from Rome, would uh, usually for a battle, for conquering, right? Uh, the, the general and the soldiers would go out in the name of the emperor and would conquer in the name of the emperor and then would return as heroes. I even like, if you'll notice, just look at all the people. What are some of the things that you can, when you look at this picture, what are some of the things that you notice about it that stand out to you? I'd love to hear that. I don't want to tell you what I see. I want to hear what you see. They're all dressed up. I see a bit of submission. Submission. Okay. Golden chariot. There's a naked baby. That's a really long procession. Yes. And um, procession with ascension. Yeah. I should have been quiet and let you say it. Nice job. Pomp and circumstance. Yeah. Um, what else do you notice specifically right here on the right-hand side? Are they general people or they're all soldiers? Just all along there. I mean, it is a display of power and authority, grandeur, right? Like literally, who I, don't, I, I was trying to look to see who painted this um, and I couldn't find who it was or even the general that it represented. Um, but what you'll, you'll note is that this person, this general, is coming in, right? Like, he's gone away, but now he's coming back to ascend, right? So it's, it's however he left when he comes back, because he's fought for the emperor, he's immediately going to come into power. He's immediately going to come into authority, right? He is, people are going to look at him and they're going to say, you know, you're the bee's knees. You're the best, Right? Um, but what we see with the, the picture of Jesus is not this at all. It's, I did say the bee's knees, yeah. Thanks, Ken. Um, we don't see this picture. We see really the antithesis of this. And it's interesting that 
If this is people's understanding of power, that Jesus could have approached his entry into Jerusalem this way because he's the coming king and people are even recognizing him in some form or fashion, you're the king, but instead he comes in in an entirely different way. Uh, I pulled up a picture from one of my encyclopedias and um, I, you can go ahead and, and pick it up. Um, it looks pretty much about as the opposite as you could go. I mean, obviously this is just somebody's rendering of what they see. Um, but, so I want to just kind of point out some things that really s stood out to me in this text, um, in, in the Matthew text. And, um, and if you, if you want to follow along, it's on page 802 again. Um, so Jesus sends out two disciples. He always sends in pairs. And he instructs them on what to do. Go to the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. What do you notice in this picture? Is there a donkey and a colt? No. I can tell you, I don't know how many times I've read the Palm Sunday story, and, I've, and it wasn't until this week that I ever noticed that there was a donkey and a colt. I mean, this is Matthew's retelling of the story, right? But I thought it was really interesting. Um, and I'm going to say why in a minute. Uh, he says, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Now, one of the commentators, every once in a while you'll find a commentator that's super cheeky, and he'll say, the way that it's written, especially from this Isaiah, it says, mounted on a donkey and a colt. And he's like, just to be clear, Jesus wasn't like straddling the donkey and the colt uh, right, as he's riding this procession. Um, I, I personally, as I look to this, when they're bringing the donkey and the colt, I see a picture. His procession is one of nurturing, right? Like I, I see uh, this colt, which is the opposite of the white stallion. And he's, he has this, more than likely some of the other versions say that he was just riding the colt. So there's a high probability he was just riding the colt. But there's this, this mother that's alongside, nurturing the colt as they're going through. And we don't know if maybe he switched over because the Isaiah text says that they rode both. And we don't, we don't really know, do we? But I just thought it was, rather than it being a display of power, it's a display of nurturing, right? And this is the pathway that he goes on. If, you, if we continue to read, and it says, uh, they brought the donkey and the colt, and this is verse 7, and put their cloaks on them. I mean, go back to that other picture. Do you see anything borrowed by the general there? <laughs> Not at all. I mean, he is like in, in full, I mean, he's decked out. Jesus is sitting on borrowed cloaks. <laughs> I mean, it's the opposite of what, he's, of what you know, Roman understanding, or even the, the, the emperor understanding, the, the, the city understanding of what power looks like. So he sat on them, and then a large, very large crowd, you can switch it back, thanks. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Uh, one of the things that was really interesting to me is that, unlike us, you know, uh, we have our walk-in closets, right? Um, and we have a bunch of different outfits that we can choose from. There's a high probability that in the first century, 
people just had one cloak. I mean, this is, they're, they're throwing this, probably their one and only cloak on the ground. And others cut branches from the trees, hence our palms. And that's a, a very Jewish way, a, a symbolism of, of lordship and kingship, right? Um, and they spread them on the road. And the crowds that were ahead of them and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. I mean, they are praising, right? Verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Um, the term, the, the best way I could describe this concept of turmoil is buzzing with excitement. That's, that's what was going on there. It was buzzing with excitement. If you go back to the, um, the other picture, um, people don't really, I mean, I know it's a, uh, it's a rendering, it's a painting, but they're not really buzzing with excitement, right? It is, it is a, it's something of submission. You see, Jesus, as he's doing this triumphal entry, his picture of what ascension is is ultimately the picture of the cross, which we see on Friday. I mean, that's ultimately what he's going to. And this, that's part of the reason why I wanted to read the Philippians text is because here's Jesus. He's on this cult, and he's, he has this mother that's next to him and his disciples, and he's sitting on borrowed cloaks, and people are laying out cloaks, and he's just going the pace of the donkey. And it's while there's people that are buzzing with excitement, it's, it's like it's more of a question mark. What's happening rather than this is our king? And so when Jesus could be given power, the Philippians text actually tells us that he removes power from himself. Like, I'll just read this to you. Uh, verse 5, let the same mind be made in you that was in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, so he's ultimately powerful, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. So instead of misusing power, misappropriating power, he says, I will empty myself of power. And then we see, if you look at all the miracles that he does, what's the power that he's using? Is it his own, his own power? It's the, the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit in him that's doing that work. Is that he's dependent, right? So he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. A servant is another way of saying Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly, also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the God, of the, to the glory of God the Father. See, what Jesus was doing was that he was showing them a different way that life could be lived. That rather than a triumphal entry, which is powerful and subjugating people and pushing people, kind of like what culture tells us, right? It's like the way that we get ahead is the dog-eat-dog -dog world. And instead, what we find is that Jesus goes at a slow pace, and he just rejects power at every turn. Any time that status is attributed to him, he deflects it 
right? I mean, it's, this is, it's kind of weird, right? Like, I, I'm seeing on your faces, and you're like, yeah, this is kind of weird. <laughs> I mean, it's the antithesis of everything that you would expect from a savior king. Everything. That a, a king would be described as a slave willingly. That a king would be described as somebody that empties himself as power. That's the opposite of a king. But why? Well, before these verses, I, when I say that Jesus shows us a different way, and we see that, I don't want to lose sight of we're in Holy Week and it's leading up to the culmination of Jesus' death on the cross and the Easter story. But I don't want to just focus on the procession without really seeing how we can deal with that today. Like, what does that say to us today? And so what Jesus, uh, what the Philippian text even teaches us is, if you wanted to follow along, it's on page 954. It's uh, chapter 2, verses 1. Because it's not just the way. Jesus promises his very mind, the very mind of Christ. Like, uh, I ask yourself this morning, what sort of mind do you carry? Do you feel like you have the mind of Christ? Uh, thank you for those of you that are just saying no, all right? <laughs> right? But this triumphal entry is, is not just to say, hey, this is something that I'm doing, that it's my ascension to the cross and then ultimately my ascension after the resurrection, right? Like the most glorious ascension. It's saying it's what I'm doing is supposed, it's going to produce a work in you. It's going to transform the way that you look at the world. It's going to transform the way that you look at your life. And your understanding of power and your understanding of culture and your understanding of all the things that are important to you can be reshaped and reformed by God. And so the Philippian text says, if, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And that's to empty yourself out of the love of others. I mean, that's, that's what he's saying. Like, hey, you have this mind, and this is the mind that you can be led in. And rather than being so concerned about what you want and your desires and the things that are important to you, rather, he says, be emptied of that and take on the selfless act and the selfless mind of Christ. I mean, I'm sorry I'm challenging you this morning, but the reality is, is that he doesn't leave it there. There's just some, this really random verse in 2 Corinthians, which I want to point out to you because you're, I'm saying this is what Jesus did and this is why he's doing it is because he's victorious and he's giving us a new mind. But there's this text and I put it up uh, on there too so you could follow along. Um, I think it's two clicks. This is um, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, okay? And the reason why I want to point this out is because we see a triumphal entry, which is the antithesis, the opposite of triumph. And why? Because he's showing us a new way to live in and through Jesus Christ. So our minds can be transformed, but it doesn't stop there. <coughs> Let me read this to you. It says, but thanks to God who is in Christ, always, 
who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. I'm not, I want to stop right there for a moment. So it's not just that God can transform our minds and that we can pour our very selves out, for, out of love to other people. Right? That mind. What is... It says Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession. And what does he do through us? What does this say? Like we are a fragrant aroma. I mean, I don't know. Um, I got a really sensitive sense of smell. And I, can you imagine how stinky a procession is? Right? Like how just offensive it is to the nose. <laughs> Right? And even for Jesus' procession, it's not this fragrant aroma. But rather than saying, like, this thing that you're doing is going to be ugly or stinky or anything like that, he points out that as he goes before us, because he's all powerful and he leads us, is that as we live fully in that, what happens is we become a fragrant aroma to the people around us. So when I say that the transformation of your mind, it's not even that you're doing it, it's he's doing the work in you. And as you live fully into that, because it is, it's saying, I'm gonna notice who in Christ always leads us, which means who's ahead of us in the, in the procession? Jesus. And so he, in some way, even here, is deflecting power. He's saying, yeah, I'm ahead of you. But it's a triumphal procession that we go in together. And as we go in that together, what happens is because I'm a fragrant aroma, you're a fragrant aroma. And then what happens when you smell a really good perfume or cologne or maybe, if that's not your thing, a delicious meal? You know, like in cartoons, I feel like it's, um, I don't know, the Looney Tunes, whenever they have that smell, they're like, <laughs> right? Like they go along. I mean, that's what I picture here is that almost people, if you can imagine the roadway, and, and as much as pe people were buzzing with excitement, there's still how many people that didn't know what was going on? They're like, who is this, right? And that's so many of us, like we're going along the way and there's people in our lives that are over here and they're, you know, doing this thing and their backs are turned. And then as we walk with, and we follow Christ, what happens is they start to, what's that, that smell, right? Now, um, this text is also honest, because it says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are, being, or who are perishing. There's an additional part. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not peddlers of God's word like so many, but in Christ we speak as, the persons, as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God and standing in his presence. So certainly we are people that stand in his presence, but note that this is only a fragrant aroma for those that desire life. 
Those that want to pursue death, what does the smell smell like? Yeah, like a rotten corpse. Death. Right, like this whole procession of triumph doesn't mean that people are always going to get it. And that's a difficult reality. But the hope is, is that whose triumph is it? Not mine, not yours, it's Christ's. So at any moment along the journey, where it may have started out and it was like, oh man, this smells horrific. But maybe as they start seeing more and more people's lives being transformed, then that which smells and looks like death actually becomes something that looks like life. I mean, this is just an interest. I mean, Paul really just kind of slams this in 2 Corinthians out of nowhere. But he's conjuring up this imagery of what a triumphal procession is all about, is that Christ is victorious, and in Christ's victory, we become victorious, and we become a fragrant aroma. So I know that I'm jumping ahead because part of this Holy Week is really looking at the procession. It's looking at the unassuming power of Christ and how he pushes away status, how he pushes away honor, and he just goes willingly and obediently, just as, and this is the crazy thing, just as we go behind Christ in this text, he goes where his father tells him to go. And so what we see is not a king that does whatever he wants, but a king of obedience and submission. Um, and so we'll see throughout this week, what does it look like to, to fall in love with a, a king that's obedient and submissive, but full of love? We'll see um, on Friday uh, a king who his greatest moment of ascension culturally is, <laughs> I mean, the most disgusting moment. It's the lowest of low. But as the Philippians text tells us and what we'll celebrate on Easter is he is risen. Right? And that's our hope. And I know sometimes we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I think that we need to hold on to that hope even today. Because we're being, today, we're being invited to, to have our minds renewed and transformed. And today, we're being invited into a new way of living. We're being invited to be a fragrant aroma, aroma to one another and to the people in our lives. So, um, when you picture triumph, and I love that so many of you said peace and just imagery um, that reflected um, creation, I want you to consider what is your triumphal procession this week? Just think about that, or today and in your life. What does victory look like to you? How are you defining victory? How are you defining success? How are you defining what's good, what's, what's right? Maybe, maybe it needs to be reoriented and redefined. I know for my life that's the case, as I was reflecting on this text, is I like control. I like power. Right? I don't like feeling uncomfortable. I don't like feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> but everything about Palm Sunday is a picture of discomfort. It really is. And he, <laughs> have y'all ever ridden on a donkey before? 
If you've even ridden on a horse before, and that's not normally what you do, is that a comfortable thing? And he's bareback. I mean, all he's got is some pre-owned cloaks that he's riding. And it wasn't a short journey. But he did it every single step of the way. He did the hard thing because he knew what the cost was and he knew why he was doing it. So let me, um, let me pray for us this morning. As, we, as you look to your journey, um, we're, we're partaking in Holy Communion together um, so that way we can reorient ourselves reorient our journeys, reorient our minds, reorient our hearts around Christ. So let's, let's pray for that now. Um, God, I feel like in some ways this is the preface to this week, even though Holy Week is starting. But I guess my heart's deepest desire is that our minds and our paths could be reoriented around you. That whatever we're chasing after, that isn't of you, whatever we're pursuing that isn't of you, um, that we could stop, um, that we could turn to you, just as the, the text says in Corinthians, and follow. Um, God, as we look to the table uh, today and we see your, the, the bread and the wine, uh, your broken body and, and shed blood for us, uh, help us to remember that the victory that we need isn't rendered or wrought out of our hard work or what we think is best, but rather it's by your sacrifice for our lives. Um, guide and direct us this day and in this coming week and uh, help us to live more fully into your way instead of our own. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.